Hey everybody, welcome to episode 14 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. Okay, time for this week's update on where I am recording the intro. If you listen to the show regularly, you probably know I like to experiment with where I record these intros. And today's may be the dumbest place yet, but who knows, maybe the sound is going to be better than ever. I am in my bedroom. I've made myself essentially a blanket tent, except it's a really crappy blanket tent because what's holding it up is me and the Pelican case that holds all my recording gear. So it's not really a tent so much as I just have a big blanket over my head and a headlamp on and a notebook and all this recording gear and it's hot. But hey, kind of feels like I'm camping. Enough about me. What's today's show? Today's show. A buddy of mine, a guy I've known for a while now, Mike Hastings. He and I met through that outdoor adventure club that Carl had formed years ago. If you don't know who Carl is, go back to episode 12. Listen to that. Carl is the guy that got me into the outdoors. And I know Mike through that club. So we've known each other for a while. And one thing I can tell you about Mike is he is impervious to cold. I don't know that I've ever seen him wear pants, even in the snow. And he and I both swam beneath Yosemite Falls one year. I don't know that I was in the water for two whole minutes. It was so cold, my head was hurting. It was giving me a headache. He was easily hanging out in there for 20 minutes or so and didn't seem to be bothered in the slightest. But that is not what today's show is about. Today's show is about the things that Mike Hastings likes to do, mainly race motorcycles. At one point, he was racing in Supermoto, guy really likes mountain biking. Earlier this year, he and I sat on my back porch one afternoon while my neighbors made a lot of noise and their AC kicked on and off and they occasionally vacuumed and we recorded this interview. So again, I've invited a guest on the show with a better manlier voice than mine. So let's move out of this stupid bedroom blanket tent and go listen to me and Mike talk about motorcycles, bicycles, and monkey butt. So, hey, I'm uh, Mike Hastings. I am a mechanical engineer by trade. Been out here in Southern California area for about 15 years. Grew up in the Detroit area. Shortly after I graduated uh, university, got a job, decided that I wanted to do something a little bit different. Literally, I packed up all my possessions into the back of a rider box truck, including motorcycle and bicycle in the back and furniture, towed my car behind the box truck. Just for fun, decided to to follow the Route 66 path. Which kind of doesn't exist these days, right? It's kind of a mishmash of what once was Route 66 and then random freeways. Yeah, yeah. so part of the old Route 66 has been covered over by what is now Interstate 40. I, you know, I tried to follow it as carefully as I could. and You and I went to have a supai, and we stopped by the delicious sports bar Monkey Butt. <laughs> I seem to recall a lot of roads in that area. 
saying they were part the, of the historic Route 66. Yeah, yeah. So you may have driven past Monkey Butt and not even known and it. Not at the even time. know. I, I may have. Yeah, it's very possible. At the time, though, I'm not sure that I would have stopped for Monkey Butt. But now that you've eaten but now there, now that I've eaten there, it'll be a regular stop for me every time. I'm Kingman, Arizona, on the way to have a soup pie, or maybe if you were going for some reason through that way on the way to the Grand Canyon or somewhere in the area. Go to Monkey Butt. It's not only a great name, it's actually a really good place to eat. Yeah, really cool little sports bar. Great people there. I seem to remember bras, like all over the place. Oh, right? that's and right. Like a huge stuffed monkey or something like that. <laughs> there was a huge uh, stuffed monkey, uh, like DJ or something in the corner. There must be something about Arizona because so there's Monkey Butt <laughs> where we went, and then I was in Payson, Arizona, earlier this year doing some canyons in the area. Yeah. And we drove by this, like, rundown-looking area, and there was just one of those traditional, really boring white and red signs you'll see, and it said Adult Cabaret. But that wasn't the funny part. On the very top of that sign, there was a three-dimensional sculpture of a cow. What? <laughs> like, so they couldn't sell you on the nude women, so they sell you on... The steaks, or they can't sell you on the steaks, so they sell you on nude women. <laughs> like what? I don't know. What That's is the idea there? Maybe a leftover uh, statue from a previous business or something. I don't know, but it just seemed like a bad juxtaposition of imagery. Mm, maybe it's got to be a joke with the current ownership or something, or, I, I or imagine, neighborhood. Yeah, I imagine they have a pretty good sense of humor there. Probably an old they steakhouse. Have to. Yeah. yeah, and then the old steakhouse <laughs> that became a strip club, a strip probably. Club. Yeah. And, or maybe it's known for both. Maybe it's amazing strippers, excuse me, ladies of the night, or whatever you want to call it. Amazing exotic dancers. And New York and, uh, strip steaks. And amazing steaks. Who knows? <laughs> I'm sure someone can let us know. If someone goes through Payson and goes by the adult cabaret, they can let us know. Yeah, yeah. We should probably shift the conversation back to you and less about awkwardly <laughs> named eating establishments in Arizona. So when I think of you, the outdoor stuff that comes to mind is mountain biking, motorsports, be it ATV or motorcycles. And I guess a good place to start out is you used to race motorcycles. Yeah. So let's talk about that. One of my big motivating factors to come out to L.A. or SoCal in general, besides the fact that I had some family on here somewhere to land when I got here, was I began to get interested in motorcycling uh, when I was in southeast Michigan, bought my first motorcycle there, started to follow uh, national and local racing at that time, but it was very uncommon. I had to travel quite a few hours to get to the nearest racetrack there. Pretty inconvenient, and I knew motorcycling was a huge culture out here in, in Southern California, so that played a big part in my decision to move out here. Yeah, so came out here, uh, landed, you know, got a job. I started to immerse myself in the motorcycling culture, clubs, hangouts, meeting people, going out riding on the weekends. I started to travel around SoCal to learn about what tracks were out here and go and watch races and walk in the in the pits and see what people were doing and ask questions and that sort of thing. Probably a year after I had lived out here, I took my first racetrack riding school. Boy, was that an eye-opening experience. 
by that point I had uh, a few years of street riding experience, but it's quite a different thing to go out on track. Probably a big difference too to be put in a situation where they say, drive as fast as you can instead <laughs> of drive as fast as you can get away with without getting ticketed. Yeah. It was fun. The first experience, there was some classroom portion of it where we had experienced uh, instructor that was giving us tips and seeing a, most of the students in the class were were very new and it was very obvious everyone was nervous. He was just making very simple tips, essentially telling everybody, relax, take it easy, don't screw up. If you get nervous or whatever, just slow down. You're not going to be winning any championships here at a new rider school. Right, because the consequences are pretty bad. They can be really bad, yeah. My first track school experience, uh, I got about three quarters of the way through the day. I had done two or three classroom sessions and two or three on-track sessions. Started to feel confident. Wouldn't you know it, I made... The worst kind of rookie mistake you can make. And, and that is? And that is I went flying off the racetrack and, and crashed. <laughs> so you launched the bike off the racetrack or you launched yourself off the racetrack? Uh, or both? Both. Both. <laughs> both. And did that bike survive? Uh, the bike was rideable. It had some some cosmetic damage to it and what as, about you as did the rider <laughs> just cosmetic damage some or? cosmetic damage and uh and bruised ego mostly and it probably affected your grade in the class. <laughs> yeah i got an f big f for fail when i say i broke the the number one rule or biggest rookie mistake as all the motorcyclists out there no, and bicyclists for that matter. The number one rule of riding on two wheels is to look where you want to go. Don't look at obstacles. It's commonly called target fixation or rule number one of cycling, particularly when you're out on a racetrack going very fast. The consequences can be bad if you break rule number one. And exactly what I did was I went around a corner too fast and I looked at obstacles that were on the outside edge of the track. And that's exactly where the motorcycle went. Right where I was looking. And I just went off, off track. And the bike went into the desert and crashed. And I flew through the air and landed on my backside. In a sense, it's <laughs> kind of like you can only focus on the present and immediate future. You can't spend too much time looking too far ahead. And you definitely don't want to look back. You definitely like. don't want to look back, but you definitely do want to look about a second to two seconds through the turn ahead of where you want to be. So you want to look on the asphalt, on the street, on the racetrack about two seconds ahead of where you currently are. When you're on the street and only doing, you know, 40 miles an hour, two seconds ahead is only uh, not very far, not very far, <laughs> 10, 20 yards ahead of you at a racetrack when you're doing you know anywhere from 100 to 180 miles an hour oh would you would you actually get up to 180 miles I, an hour i have gotten that, to 180 I, I, that is pretty fast yeah, that is, <laughs> yeah the scenery goes by pretty fast at that speed it's, it's not even scenery then it's just a it's, mismatch it's a of blur. colors <laughs> it's a blur yeah your peripheral vision becomes a blur at that speed two seconds ahead of you at that speed is like 
a football field, you really, you know, have to be uh, very focused on what's going on. Where are you going to be in two seconds? Imagine at that speed, too, you're getting a lot of wind whipping past you. I I wonder if, in a sense, it would almost feel like you're in free fall. I mean, are you being buffeted by strong enough wind at that point? I imagine you must be. You're cutting through. Well, you know, the uh, cutting-edge sport bikes today, they have a cockpit that looks like a bobsled or a luge the little bubble and and you just tuck your head down and become as aerodynamic as possible and it's not very common to get up to those speeds i would only get up to those speeds at big super speedway racetracks where you have either bank turns or really long straightaways to get up to that and the entire time you're in full tuck as aerodynamic as you can get and it's not too bad as long as you're slipstreaming. By the time you get up to that speed, your next step is to hit the brakes because you're coming into a turn hard on the brakes and you come up out of that aerodynamic bubble and then you get hit in the chest with all of that wind. Oh, interesting. And that's really where you where you feel it. Those of you that have watched motorcycle road racing, you may or may not know that uh, racers will sit up at the end of long straightaways purposely to use their chest as like a parachute. Mm, so it's kind of like an air brake. Or it something. is an air brake. Yeah. So in addition to downshifting, braking, you're sitting up and using your chest as an air brake. You took that class. You went through that course. You made a terrible mistake. I made a, that a didn't, rookie mistake. That apparently didn't frighten you away. No. So you, you finished that and then you yeah. go immediately into racing. So, yeah, I I took that new racer school. Maybe two months later, I, I, I took the necessary measures to make my motorcycle at the time race legal. Uh, there's two-page uh, rule book that require uh, certain measures to be taken to the bike. What they're mostly concerned about is that if you crash, that your bike is not going to turn into a fireball. So what that usually means is safety wiring, bolts, any bolts, anything on the bike that if impacted or if ripped off would turn into a fireball. Keep the fuel in the bike, keep the oil in the bike, keep the axles on the bike. So you have to safety wire the axle nuts and the oil drain bolts and oil filters and things like that. So I did all of those things and then uh, went racing with one of the Southern California Uh, motorcycle racing clubs the first time when you race in anger and there are 40 other motorcycles around you starting a starting grid and they throw that green flag i haven't had hardly any other more exhilarating experiences in my life other than maybe bungee jumping was pretty exhilarating but there's nothing quite like that i remember that day like it was yesterday, my first race ever, I was so freaking nervous that I literally thought I was going to puke in my helmet on the starting line. But then as soon as you get going and racing, all of that, the adrenaline just gets the better of you and, and you just, you do okay. But it's very nerve wracking the first time. So I uh, road raced for uh, about four years, w- once a month crashed several times <laughs> at several racetracks through the course of four years how bad were the consequences but, in those crashes uh knock on wood and and lucky for me uh not too bad 
were they bad enough that they took put you out of commission for a while no. or did you, so you tended to be lucky enough that you I, got to keep I was going. lucky enough through all of that racing I was lucky enough to never get never get hurt uh, no broken bones or anything like that scrapes and bruises and uh, bruised egos but nothing more than that how old but, were you at the time when you were doing that approximately late 20s okay. like 25 so, to 30 years old so young enough to be dumb but old enough not to be completely stupid <laughs> not completely yeah <laughs> certainly in in that amount of time um i saw a lot of other racers seriously hurt themselves and i've even seen one kill themselves so there is definitely the potential uh, for lethal consequences. Did um, any of that ever make you second guess yourself and think, should I maybe stop doing this? Or probably the the one incident where where a guy died for sure. I mean, uh, when that happened, they basically shut everything down for the whole weekend. That w- that was the end of the weekend of races. It's pretty rare, actually, really rare for a death, but it does happen. On any particular race weekend, there are usually dozens of crashes that happened, particular clubs that I raced with. Every race weekend could have had maybe 100 to 150 racers that were there at the racetrack for the weekend, probably 30 to 40 different races that happen, uh, different size motorcycles, clubs, and or, uh, classes and uh, there was always a dozen crashes per weekend. Most of them were were minor. For a moment there, I thought you were going to say most of them were mine. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. L- luckily, uh, I was pretty lucky, and and uh, it happened. It happened every uh, maybe once a year, twice a year. Uh, I would go down, and usually pretty minor. I think it's probably important to talk about how you said deaths are pretty rare. And I would imagine part of that is because there was a vetting process. These are people with training and experience. They're not, they're not just letting any guy with a motorcycle come in and jump on the racetrack, right? No, not at all. There is uh, The club itself had a, a new racer school that, was, uh, uh, that lasted an entire weekend. They would never let new racers just jump in to expert races. Uh, almost all of these racing organizations have different tiers or classes of racing where they only put new racers together racing each other and uh, you have to I think it was about it was about a year maybe they're usually broken into like novice and expert classes and so you take the new racer school for a weekend you get a practice race that weekend and then for approximately a year, you have to go through novice classes and only race against other novices to build up experience and confidence before they will let you race with the experts, which is generally three quarters of the population of racers there on, on a weekend or maybe more than that. Once you get a year of racing under your belt, usually at that point, you're not making stupid mistakes anymore. Hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> and if you are, maybe you've moved on by then. Yeah. I know this question's always kind of kind of vague, so hopefully it won't be too obnoxious. <laughs> Do you know what it is about you that drew you 
to motorcycle racing? Like, is it subconscious or did you specifically think like, oh, I want to do this because of this? Well, basically, do you know why you did it? Do I know why I did it? I would say for sure I'm, I'm the type of person that is uh, a risk taker by nature. So a sport like this, although can be very dangerous, that didn't really dissuade me at all. You know, as long as I can remember, I, w- I always rode bicycles as a kid everywhere in our neighborhood and city. So, you know, I was very experienced on two wheels. Of course, once I was old enough to get a motorcycle, that was very appealing to me for the typical reasons that motorcycling is appealing to most. It's a, a sense of freedom. It's that image of being a, a badass. It's... <laughs> it's uh, cruising the boulevard it's having this incredible machine between your legs that can do it's not that kind of podcast man oh (laughs) (laughs) you know that can perform at the level of like italian supercars Uh, all for under ten thousand dollar motorcycle can outperform quarter million dollar supercars for somebody like me that came from the motor city and was surrounded by uh, hot rods and, and automotive things his whole life to have uh, such a machine was very appealing and is appealing to many motorheads and I've got to guess you didn't mention this but I imagine this must be part of it you like to move fast yes you like the sensation of moving quickly through space yes yeah. which I think I, a lot of people like that sensation <laughs> or they're scared to death of it or maybe both or maybe yeah. both Anyone that loves the thrill of a good roller, the first hill on a good roller coaster knows what that thrill of acceleration and speed feels like. Or uh, maybe somebody that's been in a small airplane that has uh, some athletic ability to it knows what, what it feels like to fly through the air and uh, to accelerate quickly and have great maneuverability through time and space you really liked it you did it for four years but you don't do it now so why'd you stop i didn't quite stop after two after four (laughs) years for sure motorcycling is a passion of mine i anticipate that i will do it uh for the rest of my life after four years of a monthly road racing i was sort of not bored with it but uh ready to move on to something else Um, It's a relatively expensive hobby to maintain. Uh, I was ready to move on, and after uh, four years, I uh, decided to trade in and try something different. And uh, I bought a a different style of motorcycle, sold that bike, bought another bike, and got into a different style of motorcycle racing. So the the four years was something called road racing, which is usually fixed corner speedway type courses where it's like a 10 turn closed course, uh, usually at racetracks. This happens on uh, sort of sport crotch rocket type motorcycles. And then I switched to a different style of racing called supermoto which is a hybrid sport. It's uh, essentially a dirt bike motorcycle with street bike wheels, tires, and brakes. And the race courses are a hybrid between 
motocross and road racing. So we're talking about dirt courses? Yeah, yes. So would it be more like dirt bike racing where you've got jumps and ramps or not quite to that degree? There are jumps, yes. Yeah, so the the courses are generally three-quarters asphalt road racing course and one-quarter off-road in the dirt doing jumps. Uh, Supermoto style racing was was relatively new at the time, so I thought I'd give that a try. Uh, did that for about two years. Hurt myself far more times doing that style of racing. Oh, right, of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at the time, I did not have very much experience riding off road or or jumping motocross style jumping. So, do you think you liked one better than the other? I definitely like road racing better. Did you? Okay, interesting. Yeah, for sure. You know, a little comparison between the two. The typical road racing uh, speeds were, on average, 100 miles an hour, I'd say. Uh, You might get up to about 180 on a good straightaway. Um, But Supermoto is completely different. They're much smaller, closed courses. Uh, The motorcycles would generally not get above, say, maybe 70 miles an hour on a straightaway. So it was just too slow for you, is what you're saying. <laughs> because of my inexperience in, in dirt jumping, I tended to crash a lot <laughs> on, on the dirt portions of those. Was it because you were trying to go too damn fast? Pretty much, yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Uh, I was going too fast into the dirt and would and would crash quite often the first corner in the dirt so you're saying you like street racing more because you go faster and because you suck at off-road racing (laughs) is what you're saying well at the time i wasn't very good yeah but (laughs) it was fun another comparison so in four years of road racing i crashed maybe three times came away unscathed every time and in two years of supermoto racing i probably crashed a dozen times hurt myself more than I ever did uh, road racing, which uh, that may seem uh, seem strange to some because uh, road racing, the speed is much higher. So you you could be crashing at 100 miles an hour and people would think, oh my God, how could you not hurt yourself? But you're not complicating it by jumping things. There's no jumping. You're sliding. Right. You're you're sliding on asphalt. I imagine it's easier collisions, to walk away. I would think, are pretty infrequent on road racing as well, uh, right? Pretty infrequent. Because that would probably have much higher consequences. It would, yeah. So it's more common than most would expect to walk away from a road racing crash unscathed. Very common to not walk away from a super, right. supermoto be, be rolled crash away. because right. you're, you're flying through the air, you're landing hard. You're generally getting flipped in the air and can land hard. The most common injury that I got supermoto racing was my wrists because I would generally get thrown in the air and come down onto the ground wrist first. Trying to catch myself. Yeah. So you got out of that. After two years of abuse, I decided, yeah, I've had my fun with this and uh, I was done. I was done with that. But you you didn't give up on it because I know that... Are you down to one bike right now, or you have two still? I have two. Right, so you've got like a what, like a hybrid bike, right? It's like off road and street yeah. bike. Yeah. So at the moment, I have two motorcycles. One that's a, a full off road motocross style 
style of bike and uh, generally ride in the desert uh, or in the sand on that and then uh, another commonly called dual sport bike which are motorcycle that's capable of, of riding on both the street and the dirt and i think what you like to do a lot now right is you take road trips yeah as a matter of fact you joined a club that does that regularly yeah. right yeah so uh like any motorcyclist that's been uh, immersed in that culture for a while everybody knows there's there's plenty of motorcycle clubs out there depending on what style of bike and what style of riding you're personally interested in in my case, I use the, the dirt bike to go out and uh, keep my skills sharp on the dual sport bike. Uh, I have a local club that I ride with to go out and explore Southern California, um, both on and off-road. And it's great fun going out with a small group of people uh, exploring the hills out here. And, of course, uh, SoCal is a big area, so you inevitably have to have to ride an hour or two to get to the best riding areas so that's where the the asphalt capability comes in to get you across town and then uh, you just roll off road and, and go uh, riding in the mountains. I know you've taken a few like week-long trips and things as well where remember you were telling me about one where you traveled through Utah yeah. and, uh, and a few other places. Paint me like a, a broad picture of what that looks like if you're gonna go yeah on a motorcycle trip for a week or two, what's that look like? What do yeah. you do? Yeah, so I've done uh, several multi-day, like week and a half long road trips where in my case, I, I usually will alternate between camping and motel stays. Usually every other night, I'll switch between the two. So the, the types of motorcycles that I take on, on trips like this are generally those kind of bikes that have saddlebags on the, on the back so you can uh, pack up your camping gear uh, in the saddlebags and pack, you know, throw your tent, your sleeping bag, bungee cord it to the, to the back seat or something like that. Uh, packing for a week-long motorcycle trip is similar to to uh, packing for a multi-day uh, mountaineering trip or backpacking trip where, where weight is very critical. Uh, the amount of space that you have in a mountaineering backpack is about, about the same amount of space you have on a motorcycle. So you, you do have to be conscious about weight and only bring the bare minimum. Food and water, camping gear, changing clothes, that's about it, and a map. and and go crazy, you know? Where do you want to go uh, if you're riding by yourself or with a small group? You can literally go wherever the wind takes you. Do you find, like for instance, if you were backpacking, most of the time you're, you're walking or you're camping, do you find when you go on these trips that you're riding most of the time or do you tend to stop at destinations, do other things and then ride elsewhere? You can do it both ways. Uh, my experience has been uh, riding for probably minimum six hours a day, sometimes eight hours a day. In my case, I, I have no desire to, to like kill myself trying to, trying to do a thousand mile days, you know, to get from, the, from California to Washington or something like that. So for me, generally six hours of riding and, and uh, for sure, if, if you 
spot a diner that looks interesting or some uh, caves or or some interesting uh, landscape off in the distance yeah head in that direction go check it out and stop make yourself a picnic you know and I imagine part of the draw sometimes too is to go specifically areas that would have good off-road riding sure I've been doing a little bit of that lately I mean, heading into the into the Sierras, uh, riding around Yosemite, Kings Canyon, Sequoia, further north than that into Tahoe and and uh, Mammoth area. There's fantastic riding and camping areas uh, there um, that you could make a fantastic week long trip just exploring those areas. Do you tend to go solo on these trips? I have so far. Part of the appeal and searching out and finding motorcycle clubs is, is to find other people to do it with you. Uh, I would love to do an epic journey with, uh, with other people with similar interests. Do you want to do that around the world? Uh, I don't know what they call that route, but do you want to do that it's one? It's supposed to long... take you through every major country and across every continent except, except Antarctica, right? Yeah, I don't know what that route is called. You know, if uh, if somebody was going to sponsor me and pay my bills, <laughs> I would absolutely do that, yes. You don't think you could do your job from the back of a motorcycle uh, as you do that for six months or no, however long it takes? For, probably not. I don't have one of those uh, one of those types of jobs. But the motorcyclists that do epic journeys like that, they're generally sponsored by companies, corporations. Were there celebrities? Or like, there I think it was Ewan McGregor and someone yeah, else that did that years back. Right. Ewan McGregor is, is quite famous for a couple uh, movies that he and his buddy uh, have produced called uh, Long Way Around and Long Way Down. They've documented their worldwide globe trotting rides. So maybe if you just hang out with him, he'd spot yeah. you a few bucks. And Do you, you know you in? Can you introduce me? I'll, I'll see if I can talk to some people. Uh, all right. Out. Yeah, hook me up. I'm happy to go. <laughs> I'm sure you get saddle sore at some point, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Do, is that what Monkey Butt is? Is that why they named that place Monkey Butt? <laughs> I that think it is has something to do with that. Yeah, that is. To bring us back where we started. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what? Do you, how do you deal with that? Having proper motorcycle gear plays a big part. Of course, uh, the most important thing is to have a, a comfortable motorcycle and uh, one with a, a well-padded seat that uh, matches your ass cheeks very well. And with your favorite cartoon character's face on it. Yeah, right. There's practically an entire motorcycle sub-industry focused solely on saddles. Oh, I don't doubt that for a second. Yeah. <laughs> Anywhere someone can see an opportunity to customize oh, yeah. and, and make money. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's companies out there that will send you a piece of foam, like a memory foam type thing for you to sit on <laughs> to, to take the imprint of your ass and then turn that into a motorcycle seat for you. And maybe send it off to the porn industry and make molds of your ass that maybe, you don't know about. Maybe, yeah. You never know. You know, you if you have a know. particularly great posterior. <laughs> so yeah, to so. shift the focus off of your ass yeah. for a moment, I know that you also, because you like to be on wheels, you also do a fair amount of mountain biking. Yeah. So how'd you get into that? You know, that was uh, another reason that I came to Southern California in the first place was... Because uh, um, there for, are a couple their, of mountains For here. there are mountains here, yes. 
those of you that know what what Michigan and most of the Midwest looks like, it's extremely flat. There's no such thing as mountain biking back there. So it was very appealing to me to come out to Southern California and, and uh, ride bicycles off-road. So I got into that immediately as soon as I got out here. And you and, still uh, do that pretty regularly. I, yeah, yeah, right? yeah I'll, I'll be a, a lifetime bicyclist and motorcyclist for sure. Obviously, you don't get into racing at all if you're not a competitive person at heart. So I couldn't be a boat, a, a bicyclist either without getting into racing. So oh yeah, I guess there would be mountain bike races. <laughs> sure, right? so you, you yeah, do some of those. Absolutely, there's all sorts of bicycle racing that goes on in parallel with with motorcycle racing. Uh, I've been a, a bicycle racer for. A decade racing uh, primarily mountain bike racing and uh, also competed in some uh, roadie like road racing so like street cycling street stuff? cycling road racing uh, type races and also uh, spun that into triathlons and multi-sport off-road racing that involves bicycles I love love that too. I was talking to a mutual friend of ours not long ago, and he's talking about uh, going mountain biking with you. And he was saying, I forget exactly where it was. I want to say it's out in Kernville. There was this particular drop oh, yeah. he refused to do that you did. <laughs> yeah. And it's got some name like Kamikaze or Geronimo or something like that. Uh, actually, it's called The Plunge. That's what it is. Yeah. Tell <laughs> us about The Plunge because he made it sound like you were insane for doing it. <laughs> For those of you in SoCal that are familiar with mountain bike riding in Kernville, it's quite a famous up there for the, the fantastic mountain bike racing, uh, mountain biking in the area. There's a couple trails up there that I that I really like. One of which is called uh, the trail is called Just Outstanding. That was a fantastic trail. That's well, I would hope so. Pretty bad. Yeah. It was named just outstanding, and you showed up, and it was very mediocre. It was, yeah, fantastic trail, flowing curves, as if you were on a luge track. That was a fantastic ride. That's on uh, sort of the the western to the west of Lake Isabella up there. The other famous uh, trail up there. Commonly known as the plunge, the trail has another name that I'm I can't remember right now. But Does it culminate with the plunge? Is the plunge the end of that, or is the it... portion of the trail that they call the plunge is actually like the last quarter of a much longer trail that starts? It's uh, like a granite slab or something, canal. right? I think it's called the canal, canal, canal trail. I can't remember right now, but the time that we went up, went riding up there, a company in the area called Mountain and River Adventures, and and they run uh, mountain biking trips up there. Will where they will uh, load you up in their cargo van and take ten to fifteen bicyclists up to the very top of the canal trail and and just let you rip. And it's basically all downhill, the entire trail, uh, several hours of riding. All the enjoyable parts of mountain biking without without all the torturous climbing. Yes, absolutely. It's that trail is uh, definitely not for novices. Well, this friend of ours, Steve, he said he would not do that. The way he was talking about the plunge, he made it sound like only a madman would go down. <laughs> Well, I wouldn't say that, but... Uh, Do keep in mind, he's also ridden with you in the past and broken his collarbones. And, and so. broken bones, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's... Uh, it For sure, it, it's at least 
at least intermediate level writing um, to advance. There are sections of it that uh, you would have to be an advanced writer to get through. The majority of it is, is intermediate writing. It's really just the end. Uh, the last quarter of the trail that is called the plunge. I, I forget the statistics exactly, but it's like the last uh, five miles of the trail is like 8,000 feet of ele elevation drop. So it's quite steep downhill, switchbacking, and in certain sections, pretty fast. If you let off the brakes and just let gravity take over, you will go really fast and quite easily get out of control. Uh, a little bit higher when you're still up into the, the evergreen trees, there's some sections of the trail that are quite bouldery, you know, broken granite slabs that can be sharp and, and uh, jagged. And uh, that's- Granite can tend to be pretty slick too, yeah, which they I can, imagine would be so great on a they, bike. They can be slick. A lot of so that section of the trail is definitely advanced riding, and you hated it. It was terrible. Oh my god, <laughs> I absolutely loved it. Have you gone down it more than once? Uh, I have, yeah. So I've gone back and ridden it uh, twice. It's a fantastic trail, one of the best in Southern California. All right, so we should keep that in mind if people want to try out something possibly very frightening but very fun. <laughs> so you know that. Uh, the jagged part, the what I would consider the advanced sections of that trail. If you're not an advanced rider, you can always walk through it. None of it requires that you ride. If you get to a section that's too technical for your skill set, get off the bike and walk through it. You can still enjoy 80% of that trail as an intermediate rider and just skip over the, the technical stuff. No big deal. And when it gets to the fast stuff, the plunge at the very end, uh, you know, make sure you have good brakes on your bike. <laughs> make sure you have <laughs> And <brakes>. hang on. <laughs> so we should probably start wrapping it up. So I think what we can do is let's talk about the future. If you have any specific goals or anything you're specifically working toward right now or looking forward to doing either on your motorcycle or on your bike. Yeah, so uh, as far as uh, bicycling goes, the style of bicycling that I've most uh, been involved with is called cross-country riding which is mountain biking where you're riding for for long distances i've done cross-country racing right where you're you're racing over long distances i i think uh, in the future i would like to do some long distance riding that isn't racing that potentially even spanning overnight like a like even a a two-day long distance cross-country bicycle ride i've never done that before uh, i'd like to try that someday motorcycling kind of the same goal this uh new style of riding that i've been uh, enjoying over the last uh, six months or so the dual sport riding and adventure riding it's commonly called i haven't done any uh multi-day trips on this new motorcycle yet uh, but looking forward to uh, some multi-day long-distance riding on this style of motorcycle where there's off-road riding involved um, during the course of the, the adventure ride. So who knows? Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about some possible destinations, but uh, haven't committed to any just yet. 
stay tuned and I'll have some uh, some fun stories yeah, uh, sharing sometime good next year with me and uh, I'll yeah. share them with the audience sure too. all right well I think with that we can probably go play risk now and hopefully we can defeat Carl for the for the first time in many games <laughs> we're gonna try <laughs> all right thanks man you bet Welcome back to the sweltering heat of the blanket tent. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mike Hastings. Dude has been busy since recording the show. So when you go check out today's show notes, when you go to gogetoutside.com slash podcast, which I know all of you do all the time, every episode, right? Anyway, once you go to that today, you will find a whole lot of links for instance, there will be a link to the BMW Ventura Earthride series. He was attending that earlier this year. He also competed in the Adventure Rally Sierra Edition. Not only did he compete in that race, he took first place. But that wasn't enough for him. He also needed to compete on road bicycle racing. So he competed in the Camp Pendleton Road Bicycle Race. There will be a link to that. Although we didn't talk about it in the show... A while back, he had taken a trip to Italy. It was basically a motorcycle tour of Italy. He went through a travel agency and they helped him set up this big trip to where he could rent a bike there in Italy and tour the country. He's given me the link to that travel agency. So if you go to the show notes, you too can find that travel agency and maybe set up a trip like that for yourself and he's given me a link to the hooligan hoedown moto camping event which was apparently a lot of fun sex drugs rock and roll barbecue motorcycles camping i don't know how many of those are true but check out hooligan hoedown and find out for yourself we talked about the plunge the canal trail mountain biking trail up in the kern area there will be a link to that and to mountain and river adventures which is the company he mentioned who helped shuttle him to and from that mountain biking route. And he mentioned Ewan McGregor's motorcycle travel movies, so I've included a link to that as well. If anyone out there personally knows Ewan McGregor and wants to help Mike travel around the world with a celebrity, contact the show. Let me know. We'll put Mike and Ewan together and sit back and enjoy the hijinks of their motorcycle traveling adventures. So you want to email me about Ewan McGregor or something else, right? And you're thinking, well, how do I email him? I don't, I don't know what your email address is, Jason. Worry not, my friend. Go at ButcherBirdStudios.com. If you email that address, it will reach me. And I will respond to it because that's the kind of person I am. Or... Maybe you don't like email. Maybe you've got big fat fingers and you don't type so well. Well, You could call me, dude. It's totally all right. You can call 818-925-0106. That'll reach me. That'll go through our Google voicemail. You'll have three minutes to record a message and tell me how you and and McGregor are best buddies and you want to help Mike meet Ewan McGregor, you can do that. Or you can call me about something else. And since you're already going to be calling me and emailing me and doing all those things, you may as well subscribe, rate, and review the show. You can do that in iTunes. You can do it on Stitcher. You can do it in a lot of places where maybe you listen to this show. So go do that. Make sure you're subscribed. Rate the show. Review the show. Talk about how much you love it, how much you hate it, whatever. All opinions are welcome, but especially the positive ones. So speaking of contacting the show and emailing the shows and things, I did receive an email earlier this week from a listener 
up in Seattle, a guy whose name I'm probably going to butcher right now. I believe it would be pronounced Dan Sidlachik. That could be completely wrong. Anyway, he runs a company called Uphill Designs. They previously made some wooden trekking poles. They funded them through Kickstarter and had a very successful campaign. And now they're coming back and starting a second campaign where they are building handcrafted waxed canvas specialty backpacks. That Kickstarter goes live this week, should already be live. If you're interested in some new packs, go check it out. One of the cool things that they're doing is they are donating a dollar from every pledge they receive to the Pacific Crest Trail Association. And if you don't want to buy a pack, you can still pledge one dollar to the Kickstarter campaign and that one dollar will go directly to the Pacific Crest Trail Association. So go check that out. You can either go to UphillDesigns.com or you can search for them on Kickstarter. It'll also be listed in the show notes for the show on GoGetOutside.com. So thanks for emailing me. I hope your Kickstarter goes well and hopefully you make some cool packs for people. Next week's show. So as many of you probably have noticed, as many of you probably know, if you are here in the United States... If you're not here in the United States, awesome. Thanks for listening to the show in another country. You're super cool. But if you're here in the United States, you probably know that next Thursday is Thanksgiving. And instead of releasing the show on Thanksgiving Day when everyone's busy eating food, watching football, preparing to drive to crowded malls and fight people for TVs and other things... Instead of competing with all of that, I will release next week's show on Wednesday, the day before. So tune in next Wednesday for Katie Cannell. She is a self-proclaimed nerd and cosplayer. She's going to come on the show and talk about a few things that maybe you think are a little odd for this show. I don't think so. She's going to talk about martial arts. That's right, she's a black belt and she can kick your ass and she can possibly kill you with any weapon except maybe nunchucks, in which she has no proficiency. She'll be here talking about martial arts and she'll be here talking about escape rooms. If you don't know what escape rooms are, they're these cool games where you get locked in a room for an hour, try to solve puzzles to escape. So come back next week. We won't be talking about climbing. We won't be talking about hiking. We won't be talking about anything like that. But we will be talking about getting active and having fun outside of your house, away from your TV and your cell phone and everything else in a really cool, fun way. You know, and maybe even working out your brain and your body in the process. Next week, Katie Cannell on Wednesday, not on Thanksgiving. Although you could also listen to it on Thanksgiving Day. I won't hold that against you. See you then. <laughs>